mass of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. Time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. There are a whole lot of people in politics and the media whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment, whether it's writing a letter or making a phone call, or contributing to a campaign, or writing a letter to the editor, or once in a while when we open the call lines, the phone lines here, giving us a call. Most importantly, it's up to you to have a voice, to use that voice, to vote, and to hold your elected officials at every level accountable for what they promised you they would do. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. And that means that we're not going to spend very much time speculating on the fate of Messrs. Cohn and Manafort, as so much of cable news has done over the past two days. Nor are we going to worry about the Uh, redemption and absolution of General Flynn. Now we're going to look at some serious numbers. We're going to start with a trillion dollars. That's how much the U.S. stock market lost last week. Then we're going to talk a little about $21 trillion. That's the amount the first ever Pentagon audit is off by. In other words, unaccountable funds. Eight. That's the number of GOP House seats that were lost in California in the, 2000, in the 2018 general election. So a trillion dollars, let's talk about a trillion dollars lost in the stock market. It doesn't matter whether you have direct investments in the stock market or not. Everyone in the United States is affected by a trillion dollar loss in the stock market. That's a trillion dollars that just vaporized. So what happened? Well, falling stock prices mean tighter corporate budgets. They mean fewer jobs. That was confirmed by this week's jobs report that came in at 155,000 new jobs versus an expected 200,000. There's less research and development investment. When stock prices fall and jobs begin to contract, there's less revenue to the government. And slower economic activity is cyclic. It means it will end up 
translating again into fewer jobs. So what happened? Why did the why did the stock market suddenly get so spooked after this incredible run-up? I mean, the market's up 20% in the last two years since President Trump became president. So what happened? Well, we have an inverted bond yield for U.S. Treasuries. You, and what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, it sounds like economic gobbledygook. Well, very basically... What it means is that the interest rate on 10-year treasuries is lower than the interest rate on three-year treasuries. And that's backwards from the way it's supposed to be. You know, it usually the longer the risk period, the higher the return, right? Well, um, that's not happening. And, and the reason for that is that it... It's a representation of the fears of our ballooning debt. That's why the 10-year Treasury has a lower yield, is that people are concerned about that 10-year horizon given the size of the debt and the amount of our budget that will increasingly have to go to servicing that debt. So investors are more and more concerned also about the state of U.S.-China trade talks and tensions. When you impose tariffs, as we have done, as the president has done in the name of national security, when you impose tariffs, well, the Chinese react. And how did the Chinese react? They are buying fewer goods from the United States. They are the largest purchaser of U.S. soybeans, or have been historically. And this year, their purchases were almost zero. And that's a short-term problem and a long-term problem. It's a short-term problem because those farmers had planted those soybeans on the anticipation that the Chinese would buy them, and now there's no market for them. It's a long-term risk because the Chinese are finding alternative markets. And once they find those alternative markets, usually able to undercut um, the U.S., they don't, they don't have the yields and they don't have the quality of American agricultural products. But Brazil can fill the immediate need. And if it can fill the immediate need, it can take market share away from U.S. farmers permanently. So that's a reason for falling stock prices. There is also the ongoing issues between the U.S. and China, some of which are are pretty intractable. I don't know how you think a 90-day um, uh, period of uh, trade talks is going to solve an intellectual property theft problem between the United States and China that is at least 20 years old. The Chinese, the Amer American corporations take a quarter-to-quarter -quarter, uh, view of profit and loss, um, which it goes back to my comment about uh, reduced R&D spending, which is not a good thing. The Chinese look at a longer horizon of history, and they say, and, and it's a different set of standards. The Chinese see nothing wrong with stealing um, intellectual property, either by forced technology transfer, if you want to manufacture in China the, the Apple story, or... Um, or by uh, stealing, actually stealing uh, designs and drawings and um, uh, 
research materials as they recently did from a subsidiary of GE involved in jet engine man- development and manufacturing. And they got caught. And that person's going to spend a long period of time in a U.S. jail. Well, and then when you want to put a cherry on top of that cupcake, this week the Canadians, at our request, arrested the CFO of Huawei Electronics when she arrived in Vancouver. And they did that at the request of U.S. authorities. This is a company with a $92.5 billion annual revenue. It's the largest purveyor of 5G internet infrastructure. And you know what? They are thought to be an agent of the Chinese government and a risk to the global cyber community. And just this morning, the Chinese have called uh, our ambassador in uh, Beijing, uh, Terry Bradstad, into um, their into headquarters, and uh, as well as the Canadian ambassador, and threatened um, serious retaliation if we don't free this woman. Um, the U.S. government has shown no interest in doing that. That arrest was made in conjunction with violations of the international sanctions on technology transfers to Iran, and it's worth 30 years in a U.S. prison, uh, which definitely is displeasing to President Xi. So that piece complicates a successful resolution of U.S.-China trade relations. Um, you can't, ba- we cannot back down, um, nor can the Chinese. So finding a face-saving solution isn't something that's going to happen in 90 days. And that's why the stock market has a really serious case of the jitters. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk very briefly about What should you look for in light of the sliding stock market? You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with just a little bit more about the stock market. What does this sliding stock market mean for you? What could happen tomorrow? Well, in light of the Chinese um, upbraiding of of the ambassadors uh, from the United States and Canada today, um, it could mean a further decline in in prices and stock prices tomorrow. uh, And that could result in panic. Um, my, My personal recommendation to you is, Hold your breath unless you're buying and selling stock in the immediate um, last couple of months. You're okay. Um, A correction is probably not a bad thing. We do not want that correction, which makes brings um, the price of stock into better ratio with the earnings of various uh, global corporations. We don't want to create panic. So, just don't look at your portfolio. Just relax. All of this will it it will pass. Um, there there will be some unpleasantness in the process, but it will pass. 
We could also th- see further declines in short-term treasury yields as investors flee to safety. In other words, as people pull money out of the stock market and put it into the bond market, there's more money, then they don't have to pay as much interest to get that money. Uh, and that, as a taxpayer, while it costs you as an individual investor, it saves you as a taxpayer. So it's okay. Um, there is also a potential for continuing decline in housing prices, which is probably good news for an overheated market. Um, I don't know that that will be true in California because we have a million unit shortage. So I'm not sure how much uh, decline we will see. Um, but continuing, uh, if we see a continuing declining market, we will also see continuing weaker than expected job numbers, and that does worry me. But what that will result in is a halt in the interest rate increases that the Federal Reserve has promised us, and that could have a stabilizing impact. So within the United States, 80% of of, of jobs are created by small and medium businesses. Those are not businesses which are on the New York Stock Exchange or on NASDAQ, et cetera. They are family-owned, privately held, um, single proprietorships, et cetera. And that part of the economy is just rolling right along. It's doing very well. So there is no reason for panic unless you are a big Wall Street trader. Um, And... And at this point, the U.S. economy can withstand a reasonable slowdown in the U- in the European Union and also in China, should that happen. In fact, it could be good for the U.S. economy. It could be good for the global economy if some of the heat came out of the market, uh, some of the speculation and the heat came out of the market. And if all this happens, you know, if, if I'm wrong, um, and, you know, there's a 50-50 shot. You know, I studied economics. <laughs> I know that some of this, whether it's rational or not, um, we could see panic. And that would cause all of the bad things um, that I think we're going to mitigate to actually happen. So what if all of the worst, what if, what if we saw a panic, um, treasury yields, fell again to 1%, the potential for, you know, for housing, the bottom fell out of the housing market, um, people, layoffs began, et cetera. What if all of that happened? Well, I'll tell you what, it is, it means preventing that from happening, preventing that from happening means that in the earliest months of 2019, Congress finally has to get its act together and pass a massive, and I do mean massive, infrastructure renewal bill. It's going to be, it's absolutely going to be vital to stabilizing and securing the success of the American economy. Uh, The Civil Engineering Society says there's about $4 trillion in maintenance that needs to be done. And that does not include some of the of the uh, renewal and development work that we need to do to bring 5G 
um, it, uh, cyber into the entire, you know, expand that to the entire country um, or, you know, find new sources of energy, et cetera. Just the remediation of our infrastructure, water, power, transportation, et cetera, is a more than $4 trillion deficit. $4 trillion, if we can find a way to pay for it, will create $16 trillion in economic activity. That would almost wipe out the It would at least get the debt, given existing tax practices, or maybe a couple of tax increases, small ones, um, it would get us to a point of a manageable debt. So everything, everything I think, at this point, uh, the way we avoid major trouble is by getting in front of it with a major infrastructure renewal plan. It's got to be a bank of some kind. I've written about it, um, but Congress didn't take my advice about how to fund it. And they gave all that money back to um, global international companies who repatriated the money and did stock buybacks back to the beginning of this discussion instead of using that money to create additional economic activity in the United States. So we'll see what Congress does. I've heard at least a dozen members, uh, Democratic members uh, of the House, say that it's job one. But the question will be how to pay for it. And I've got an idea. And in a couple of weeks, you'll probably see a blog about that idea to fund an infrastructure bank and create a permanent source of uh, infrastructure renewal funding. And enough on that subject. So $21 trillion, it's funny, you know, that is the size of the entire debt. But it's not all the fault of the Pentagon. I'm sorry, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It is not that the Pentagon is the source of all evil and all economic um, uh, mistakes in the United States. And no, if you close down the Pentagon today, you could not pay for universal health care. But that's not what her tweet read. It's really not all that simple. Um, what uh, Congresswoman, a pers- Congress kid elect Cortez said in her tweet was that we could pay for universal health care because it's only $32 trillion if we took away that money from the Pentagon, and she's wrong on so many fronts, but let's start with the basics, that the $21 trillion is over a 17-year period, and that universal health care number is a 10-year period. And by the way, I believe that number, that $32 trillion number, <laughs> is on the low side. It reflects it reflects exactly what we spend on health care today, and it does not take into account the fact that health care has an almost 10 percent uh, inflation factor over a um, year over year. So we're probably talking about 40 trillion dollars for universal health care in a 10 year period. So. Let's get real about what that 21 trillion dollar loss by the Pentagon means. The fact of the matter is that total military spending 
by the United States of America since the Revolutionary War, if you took it all and added it up, what we've actually spent, it isn't $21 trillion. What we've got are some really big accounting issues at the Pentagon. I do mean big with capital letters and also some spending priorities that we need to look at. Because that $21 trillion represents both over and under. So things that were um, that cost less than was on the books and things that cost more than was on the books um, are added together to get to that $21 trillion um, deficit. So what do we need to do? What, what should we take from this tweet other than silliness? Well, we'll talk about that for a minute when we come back from our brief commercial interruption. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. So now that we've settled that if we're all sensible people, we will not see um, a massive economic dislocation in the American economy. And we've identified the fact that the Pentagon really hasn't lost $21 trillion. They've just kind of misplaced it. You know, it's all on paper. It's not real. Um, And that's exactly what needs to happen now. Okay, we now know we're out of balance. You know, in other words, when you do general, um, when you when you do uh, double entry bookkeeping, the the kind of thing that is um, generally accepted accounting practices, you've got to equal your your um, inflows and your outflows have to equal. So, in other words, um, <clears throat> as I learned in my first accounting class in grad school, uh, debits by the window and credits by the door. So the credits and the debits have to equal, and they're out of balance by that $21 trillion. So now you got to go and find all of those mistakes and investigate them and figure out what the accurate number is. And when you do that and you make all the appropriate jargony journal entries, you will balance the books. And you know what? If we could accomplish that, if they took a tiger team, a special forces team, and they plowed through that in the next year, Congress would actually have a basis so that they could then measure Pentagon spending accurately going forward. Because we are spending a ton of money on the Pentagon, and yet we are not getting the basics done correctly. So... Um, We've had 39 uh, injuries and deaths of service members in training accidents involving U.S. military aircraft this year. The most recent, uh, just a couple of days ago over the Sea of Japan and the silence um, from the news media indicates that they've been unable to uh, recover any of the uh, airmen on board the refueling um, C-130. And that's an unacceptable uh, state uh, state for the U.S. military to be in, to be to not have the money to properly train and maintain aircraft. 
is an unacceptable condition. And so whatever we don't spend money on um, in uh, in the military um, at the moment, wherever we can find discretionary military spending that's not high priority, we need to be putting that money into training and readiness and maintenance so that we are protecting our troops and keeping them safe. I suspect that John McCain rolled over in his grave when they told him it was $21 trillion out of balance, although he was known to produce some pretty damning reports, uh, $69, $70 million a year um, misappropriated. So I think it's good news, not bad news. And as to Ms. Cortez, who is barely old enough to be in Congress but has decided that perhaps she should run for president because she doesn't know how to read the Constitution either, she says, because we haven't passed the Equal Rights Amendment, it doesn't, the 35-year minimum age requirement does not apply to a woman. Uh, yeah, she really said that. Uh, that's not what the Constitution says. That's what she said. So here's my advice to Miss Cortez. Alexandria, children should be seen and not heard. And so until you learn something about humility or doing your homework or doing the research and knowing what you're talking about, I suggest that you not say so much. And now let's talk for just a minute about eight lost California GOP House seats. It's worse than that, folks. There's not a single Republican constitutional officer left. 75% of the state legislature is now Democratic. That's more than a supermajority. The margin of victory, and, and, and Gavin Newsom will not be the man who says, I need to govern for all the people. Gavin Newsom, who wants desperately to be a viable presidential candidate um, on the progressive left, uh, will, will govern um, only for his majority in the state legislature. And the margin of victory may be influenced by California's super permissive election laws. Yep, and we're going to talk about that in a minute because that was really the focus of where I wanted to go with this this morning. But the underlying failure is to respond to a changing electorate and an increasingly unpopular president. You've heard... <clears throat> I mean, when you look at Orange County with a super with a majority Republican registration and when they lost three seats, uh, the Rohrabacher seat was due to go. And the guy who won that seat changed his registration from Republican to Democratic so that he could run against Rohrabacher um, in the jungle primary. Um, otherwise, you'd have had two Republican candidates um, and and he would have unlikely made the runoff. So <clears throat> it was it was creative, and that's probably a good a good change. Um, he will not vote with the Progressive Caucus, but we had we lost two races in Orange County that bedevil me that we should not have lost. Mimi Walters outperformed Donald Trump by seventeen points two years ago, and just lost her seat by about a thousand votes. And young Kim, who was a veteran of the state legislature and a very popular Southern California politician, lost her race 
to a, you'll excuse the expression, white male um, by about less than 2,000 votes. And so those are seats we should not have lost. And you have to, of course, then start to wonder these, I mean, all in all of those races, the Republican was ahead when the when the results uh, were tabulated of all votes um, for on election night. So we got to look at the process of voting in this state to ensure that we're doing the right thing. So. You've heard in the last couple of days, I'm sure you've heard about a technique called ballot harvesting. It's created a scandal in North Carolina. My God, how can you have paid people running around collecting other people's mail-in ballots and God knows what happened to those ballots? It's a scandal. You know what? It's the law in California. And while you let that sink in, I think we'll take a quick commercial break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what ballot harvesting is and how it happened in Orange County. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. So have you digested that? Ballot harvesting in California is 100% legal. Been the law in California since 2016. And the election supervisor in Orange County has acknowledged that people, so multiples, came in with 100 or 200 mail-in ballots on election day. In other words, they stuffed the ballot box with votes that probably they were, may have been appropriately sent out um, to registered voters, but those voters hadn't bothered to return them. And so with a very, very targeted campaign, they went and swept up all sorts of Democratic ballots. Yes, it was very carefully done. So um, it while, while the rest of the country is is fixated on ballot harvesting scandal in North Carolina, it might be time for the Democrats to stop in California to stop smirking and recognize that they are only 47% of the 19 million registered voters in California and that to remain in power, because we're not stupid, they may need to reform the election process before someone takes them to court and forces it on them. Because if they don't do that, if they don't reform what it seems to be a cynically out-of-control balloting process, um, not only will the majority of Californians, but the rest of the nation is not going to trust the results of California elections. You know what? Um... If you look at Oregon and Washington, they're 100% mail-in ballot. There is no election day voting. And I wonder if for California that might not be the right solution. The Voters have a month to mail in their ballots. You don't even need a stamp. 
just stick it in a mailbox anywhere. Um, and and ballots, you know what what I would do if I were if I were queen for a day. What I would do is go to a mail-in only system in California, um, in which ballots have to be received by two days after the election in the mail to be counted unless they're overseas ballots. There'd be no harvesting. There'd be no last-minute procrastinating, and you know who you are. There be a well. There is a well-advertised and well-announced re- deadline to register to vote about thirty days before the election, and that gives the government time to verify your eligibility and to get election materials to you, so that you can read through them, so that you have some understanding of what you are voting about and who you are voting for. If a potential voter is not motivated enough to register after all of the opportunities that are afforded, they shouldn't be able to register on election day. Voting is a right if you're a citizen, yes, but it's also a responsibility and a privilege. And we need to know that the people who are exercising that privilege do it responsibly, know what they're doing, and don't wait to the last second um, because that's where the, the mistakes and the problems come. And by the way, why do you need same-day voter registration when you have motor voter uh, in, in force? Um, not to mention the fact that we've seen two system-wide failures of, verif- of the verification process in the motor voter system. So what should the legislature do? Well, let's hire an independent auditor. Let's audit all the election rolls. Let's get rid of all of the dead people that are still on the rolls. Let's remove the duplicate registrations and let's verify the eligibility of all voters. And then let's do some more regression testing on motor voter so that we are sure that we can rely on its ability to determine who should and should not be registered. Ballot harvesting, if we go back to that for just a moment, probably played a role in the extremely close contests for all of the lost House seats. I agree with Paul Ryan there. But it's not the explanation. The explanation continues to be dissatisfaction with the president, which resulted in a mass exodus of suburban white women in California who normally would vote Republican. So Republican positions on immigration and health care, the failure of a party to evolve with the evolving times. It's time for some deep soul searching. And in keeping with the touching tributes to George Herbert Walker Bush this week, it's time to remember why California was a GOP stronghold for a quarter of a century ago, that we had a Republican governor only nine years ago. What did those people do? They mixed fiscal sanity, which has lost its way in California to an extent larger than the nation as a whole, but they they combined fiscal sanity with social moderation. But to get there, we need a new generation of conservative leadership, or as I said to a friend of mine recently, the grand old party needs to be of California needs to become the brand new party, open to all putting country over party, and stopping the runaway spending. And so in the the few moments that we have left, yeah, let's talk about Conan Manafort for just a moment. You know, 
amid the media chorus, there was all this speculation. Everybody was sitting on pins and needles waiting for the sentencing memorandum. Although, as though it were going to be a revelation like Moses and the Ten Tablets. And what we got was a whimper. The sometimes known as Sovereign District of New York. In other words, the Southern District of New York. Um, acknowledge that Michael Cohn has minimally cooperate, cooperated and, and, you know, person one um, is the man whose name is on Trump Tower. Um, it <clears throat> is almost an unindicted co-conspirator. But they also said that Cohn still hasn't come clean. The, the Mueller team, who acknowledged Cohn's 70 hours of testimony and conversation, still pointed to the fact that he lied to Congress. And he lied when first confronted with his lie by the Mueller team. So <clears throat> Mueller did not offer him forgiveness for his having seen the light. But he did suggest that any sentence for lying to Congress could be served concurrently with the tax and campaign finance terms. And he did acknowledge that Cohn has given, quote, substantial assistance. But that's all we know. What I find the most troubling is that before Michael Cohn lied to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, they circulated his opening statement in the White House so that all of those officials would get their story straight. And if that's not obstruction of justice, then we don't have a statute for obstruction of justice. So what's next? Well, Cohn and his lawyers still have three days to come clean with all of his crimes. Whether or not he's pleaded guilty to them or not, that's what the prosecutors in the Sovereign District of New York really want. They won't prosecute him additionally, but they want to get him on the record because it's, a, it's valuable to the state of New York in their separate investigations. So Michael Cohn has to weigh two things. He has to weigh what, what the legal beagle, eagles say is reputational damage against how long he wants to play gin, rum, gin rummy, or bridge with Bernie Madoff. Three years or five years or more or less, but that's about the range we're looking at. And at this point, Mr. Cohn, from my point of view, worrying about reputational damage is kind of mute. So we shall see what we see this week. When it comes to Manafort, Manafort is a crook, he's pleaded guilty to crimes that are just shy of treason. He signed a cooperation deal with Miller and the federal court in Washington, D.C., and then lied again. I mean, you're in jail, convicted, and <laughs> pled guilty, going to go to prison, and you lie to the FBI and the grand jury again? To me, that is the definition of a slow learner. But the majority of that sentencing memorandum is redacted, so we know it's been filed with the court, but we, you and I, do not know what's in it. And faced with that breaking news, President Trump tweets out that the Mueller investigation should end with the Conan-Manafort indictments. Again, the president is moving the goalposts instead of acknowledging the facts. 
He lied to the American people about contacts with Russia during the first half of 2016. He offered Putin a $50 million penthouse in Moscow while campaigning for the American presidency. And now he says, oh, he was just doing business because he didn't know if he was going to win or not. So he just kept doing his business. He lied about his involvement in paying off Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. Now, I will give him credit for the fact that he probably didn't know. Probably didn't know enough about the campaign finance laws to know it was actually a felony. But he knew that he was trying to impact the campaign. And in close, just to close it up, the one guy who is going to come out of this with some of his reputation intact is Mike Flynn. Because Mike Flynn, when confronted with his perfidery, put country over self and pleaded guilty and cooperated. And the country will owe him for that, at least the continuation of his three-star general um, pension. And we'll be back in just a moment with a couple of closing thoughts. Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a couple of closing thoughts. Well, you know, an airplane trip is never anything to waste when you've got nine hours in the air. It's a good time to read. I read a couple of easy, quick books this week by a man by the name of John Thibault. They're called Sway and How to Change a Law. John whose background is in corporate government relations as well as Silicon Valley entrepreneurship, has written a clear and clarion call to exactly what we espouse here at reimagineamerica.org. ilobby.co. That's ilobby.co, small i, capital L, dot co, not com, dot co. It's an online platform that makes it easy for voters, small business people, and trade associations to take political action by engaging in public policy. Because what iLobby does is it connects voters with lobbyists who work in Washington with members of Congress to get laws passed or laws changed. So iLobby is a place to create an issue, debate an issue, look for res- uh, for various ways to resolve political problems of the world and uh, locally or statewide or nationally, and to discover, share, and express what's important to each of us as individual voters. Um, you can find Sway, the book Sway, which explains how lobbying happens and what the process is at books2read.com backslash sway or go to the iLobby application or the iLobby Facebook page to get a free copy of some of John's other books, which are also available through Amazon. I'm hoping I can persuade John to join us here on the Reimagine America Hour in the near future to explain in more detail exactly what he's learned Um, in a career in which he played on both sides of the aisle as the government relations person who needed to take corporate policy to government 
and also as the um, corporate leader who needed to work through the government relations process. So he understands the concepts of lobbying extremely well. Um, and so, again, I urge you to go to books2read.com backslash Sway and get yourself a free copy of the book Sway. It'll take you about 40 minutes to read it, and you'll be um, much smarter for having spent the time. Or go to um, your Facebook um, page and do a search on iLobby, and you will find um, their, the iLobby Facebook page, and you can... Um, uh, access some of the free offering book offerings that that iLobby is offering right now. So back to Reimagine America. If you want to hear a repeat of this or any Reimagine America Radio Hour program, you'll find the podcast at reimagineamerica.org. If you've got a comment or a topic you'd like me to cover, send me an email at joyce at reimagineamerica.org or a tweet at Joyce Cordy, all one word, or at the Reimagine America Radio Hour tweet. I had hoped today to talk about climate change, but perhaps next Sunday will be things will be quieter and we can do that. And in the meantime, have a great day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.